New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. The business of stories is not the enchantment. The business of stories is not escape. The business of stories is waking up. These are the opening words to Dr. Martin Shaw's newest book, Courting the Wild Twin. With these words, he's challenging us to examine our broken relationship with the world and he uses two ancient European myths that concern our own inner wild twin. As a human culture, we regularly claim ownership with people, places, and nature herself. But more than ownership, our guest today speaks about the deepest need of humankind, and that is relatedness, relatedness with awareness. And he helps us along this path by sharing story. He says stories can actually be a kind of praying, a back and forth between us and the earth and its myriad dimensions. Stories, he says, tell us to keep attending to grace, keep an eye on the miraculous. And he reminds us, the old ones say, to cast the language of relatedness you have to know you have a wild twin. Our guide today, Dr. Martin Shaw, will help us get acquainted with this wild twin and how it can be helpful in navigating these turbulent times. Dr. Martin Shaw is a scholar of myth and is an acclaimed storyteller. He's a wilderness rites passage guide and is internationally regarded as one of the most exciting proponents of mythic imagination. He tells prophetic stories that speak deeply to the challenges we face today in the world and in our personal lives. He has devised and led the oral tradition course at Stanford University in California and is visiting fellow at Schumacher College and the director of the West County School of Myth, a learning community at Dartmoor. Martin Shaw's books include the award-winning Myth Teller Trilogy, also The Night Wages, Bidden or Unbidden Initiations Come, and Courting the Wild Twin. Join us for the next hour as we serve some soul food for our mythic imagination with our guest, Dr. Martin Shaw by remote connection 
I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Martin, welcome. Pleasure to be here, Justine. It's a pleasure to have you. First of all, I'd, I'd love to talk about myth and fairy tales. Um, why should we be paying attention to them? Do they have anything to say to us in these times? I think they have a great deal to say to us. One of the things I've been thinking about in my current uh, self-solituding state, like everybody else, I've been up in a cottage on Dartmoor in England for the last five weeks. One of the things I've been thinking about is the fact that ancient stories rarely traffic in the day that was like the day before. They usually begin with the day that everything changes whether that's something that happens in an individual's life or whether it happens in a culture or a tribe or a village, they are designed to take us deeper when circumstance starts to squeeze us. They don't indulge arbitrary misery. They are always trying to dig into the mud of the encounter with the notion that possibly there's a little bit of gold in there. There's some information that over time could turn into wisdom. So stories, fairy tales, folk tales, myths and legends, you know, I hate to say this, but, but pandemics are nothing new. Plagues are nothing new. I've been looking at the plague records in my immediate district and it was only a few hundred years ago that most of the people in the nearby town were pretty much wiped out. So in other words, even at that time, or especially at that time, the folk stories of the people, the fairy tales of the people, would have had enough depth to support them through really terrifying encounters. And actually, we haven't changed a great deal since those moments. We're surrounded by accoutrements which make us feel that we have. But our little animal story selves still want to hunker up to the fire of these great stories. Because in some strange way, they're always alive. They remain fresh. Uh, you know, I have a daughter who is incredibly drawn to the Odyssey. How can that be with everything else that's going on in her teenage life? She can hear something in the story of Penelope and Odysseus and the longing for home, the nostos, the longing for Ithaca. How can stories have that kind of um, eternal currency in them? So I think stories always show up once the squeeze begins. What you're saying when we're talking about stories and you're talking about digging and going down, it's, I, I know in your work, it's not about transcending. Many of the stories take us to the very soil on which we stand. Uh, it takes us down into uh, that dark uh, soil. Uh, can you speak about that and why why that is so often shows up in story? Yeah. 
Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not averse, <laughs> I'm not averse to a bit of euphoria every now and then. But you do have a point. There is something about what we could think of as the underworld, and I think what you're getting at is the relationship actually between myth and initiatory experience. So whether you are born into a tribal group in Africa, or you're growing up, you know, in a village outside London. Sooner or later, life itself, bidden or unbidden, is going to drag you far away from what uh, you may have expected or wanted for your own life. This has been going on for countless thousands of years. And so when a story, the stories we remember have initiatory qualities in them, because that's actually what our life looks a little bit like whether it's, uh, you know, a profound depression we can't seem to get over, whether it's um, an experience of despair or illness, this stuff keeps coming up, keeps getting our attention. So life itself will pull us off the tracks. Uh, it is not full, necessarily, of victory stories. In fact, actually, when you're with a group of people, if you want to bring them closer together, victory stories, ironically, are very rarely what do it. It's the stories of grit. It's the stories of soul. It's stories that helped you deepen into an understanding of um, what failure can feel like and actually how you can build from that. This week, I have been re-looking at some of the old Grail stories, just entirely for my own benefit. And one of the things you learn in a story called Parsifal, who's a young man who goes out looking to looking to find out. Uh, he he once has a, an audience with a a wounded Grail king, but he's been told not to ask any questions, so he doesn't. And then gradually realizes an enormous opportunity has sailed past him. And the second half of the story is trying to find by an act of will what you what you once glimped as a moment of grace. So the question I'm asking myself at the moment in my solitude is what questions in my life have I failed? to ask what questions have i failed to ask not the great uh, accoutrements of success but the business that i have left tangled up all around me and you know what i notice very quietly and maybe unconsciously lots of other people are doing similar things i'm receiving notes from people uh, who I maybe haven't spoken to for years, trying to build bridges. There's a kind of generosity of spirit that is occurring uh, that is really edifying for me. But to get back to your original question, life itself, the business of coming down, coming down into the business of the world, all the mud and the smoke and the darkness, Part of that is we are going to experience betrayal. We are going to experience distress. We are going to experience life not behaving in the way that we'd like it. And that is absolutely appropriate. Um, so at the moment, 
I'm trying to sit in, to be honest, in the discomfort of this experience, because I know I see it as the goddess of limit. In the limit that I have around me at the moment, I know that's an opportunity to deepen. I can't get on a plane. I can't fly. I can't travel. But within the limits I have, I can deepen. And it's the stories that are always wanting us to push down to where Baba Yaga lives, down into the caves, down into the Paleolithic, down into Lascaux, because there's something down there, to use that word that Campbell used to love, the chthonic, down in the chthonic underbelly of things, we as a culture have desperately got to listen right now. And I guess that that is also the gift of our time, that we're forced as, as humankind all over the planet to, to hunker down in place and to, to, to be in that quietude now, being quiet enough to actually start to hear the, the questions that we're, we're grappling with because we stay so busy and the cacophony of, of life is now slowed down. Um, so I, I'd love for you to say something about that in just one moment, but I would like to also invite you to share a story with us. And um, I know that there are two beautiful stories contained within Courting the Wild Twin. And I'd love for you to share one of those with us in just one moment. I, I just want to remind our listeners, I'm here with Dr. Martin Shaw, and he is the author of his newest book, Courting the Wild Twin. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Martin Shaw, and he is the author of Courting the Wild Twin. And Martin, I'd love for you to share one of the stories from the book, The Lindworm. Okay. Oh, there was a kingdom of curlew and inkberry, snowy mountain and tangled byre, a kingdom of bristling meadows and secretive pools of water only you know about. The hawks circled under such pools and fish darted swiftly under the surface. In the centre of the kingdom, there was a king and a queen, gracious and attentive to the people, 
distributors of favours, settlers of disputes, throwers of banquets. You never heard a bad word about them. But at night, a sorrowful grief hung between them. They could not conceive a child. This nibbled away at the queen, slowed her every step, and so she took herself to the surrounding forest, hoping a stroll would calm her anguish. Under the bough of an oak tree, she met an old woman who recognised the tension in the young woman's face. When the queen unburdened herself of her concern, the crone claimed she had a remedy for the issue, and if she followed her instructions exactly, then all would be well. She spoke, You need to give voice to what you truly desire. Get your breath on it. Tonight at dusk, walk to the northwest part of the garden, and as you go, speak everything you wish to see arise. Finally, speak the last words into a double-handled cup. Flip the cup onto the dark soil and go to bed. In the morning, there will be two flowers under the cup, one red, one white. Eat the white, but under no circumstances the red. Eat the white, and you will have that which you cherish the most. At the end of the day, the queen did just that. She strolled and spoke, whispered and crooned everything that was in her heart, gave every fissure of longing voice, then blew into the cup and flipped it onto the soil. That night, she made love with her husband. In the morning, she walked to the cup and turned it over. Just as the old woman had said, the red and white flower. She remembered exactly the instructions of the crone. Oh, why do we do this? Why do we do this? Before she knew it, she was on all fours, gobbling up the red flower, every last bit of it. In the doing of it, her body rang out like a struck bell of rapture. Every nerve ending accomplished itself in an exfoliation of ecstasy. And then, slowly, she came back to herself. Now, this wasn't what the old woman suggested. In fact, it was the opposite of what she had suggested. So guiltily, she reached for the white flower and consumed it. She and her husband made a decision. No one needed to know. It was settled. Well, the old woman's magics worked. She immediately felt new life nibbling at her energy. And nine months later, she went into labor. A center that had been barren was about to demonstrate its fertility again. The strangest thing happened. It was not a child that exclaimed itself from the queen's womb, but a small black snake, a worm. Such was the shock of the moment. The midwife grabbed the writhing serpent and hurled it far out of the window into the darkness of the forest. Only minutes later, a baby boy was born, 
and the snake was forgotten, never to be spoken of. Years passed and the boy became a young man, a man that wished for a wife, a love, a companion. And that sort of thing requires searching for. It requires a quest. He went to his parents and they gave him permission to travel out and see if such a one existed. They gifted him a white horse and white saddle and bridle for the occasion. Oh, such high spirits as he galloped from the castle, heart to rat to tap tap in his chest. Further he went into the forest, past the typical hunting spots he had enjoyed, far deep into the dreaming. He came to a crossroads, and it was there that his life utterly changed. Ripping up before him, was a huge scaled black serpent, steam from its nostrils and a raw bellow from its snapping jaw. Older brothers marry first. Older brothers marry first. Sensibly, the young man fled. But for the rest of the day, every crossroads he came to, there was a serpent bellowing. Older brothers marry first. Exhausted, Shaken, he returned to his parents that night with a question. Is there anything about my birth that may have slipped your mind to tell me? Anything involving a furious black snake that claims to be my older brother? His parents went blank at the query. We don't know if they recalled or not, whether they were stalling or innocent of memory. What we do know is that all three of them visited the midwife and asked her the same question. By now such a tiny woman, she could have taken residence in a matchbox, she finally spoke. No, 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 yes, no, 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 no. Ah, they heard that yes secreted amongst the no's, and suddenly she was a drifting confession. Well, I don't quite like to recall, but yes, maybe. Definitely there was a wee black worm that shot out from the queen, a terrible-looking thing. I held it for a fraction of a second, then hurled it into the dark and the rain. And now look at you, handsome prince. Why bother thinking of a little freak like that when we can enjoy you? The family went very quiet, but it was a useful kind of quiet. It was a deepening, and from that deepening something extraordinary was hatched. The king spoke. If it is true that this is your brother, then we must not send hunters into the forest to slaughter it. We must send the poets, the musicians, the storytellers to court it from its lair. It needs to be with us. It needs to come home. We need to make a home for the serpent. And that was exactly what happened. In the belly of the castle, a room was filled with hay to make a vast nest. And slowly, through kind words and lively music, the black snake slouched towards its family. It was so vast the doors had to be widened to get him in. Tapestries got scorched by his breath. 
But by the end of the month, it had happened. The snake was in residence. And from the centre of the castle, all heard the bellow. Older brothers marry first. They messaged all corners of the land. Dark prince seeks bride. And the response was keen. One of the applicants was confirmed and brought to the castle. After a tour of the ground, she was taken into a low-lit room with a priest. A vast, dark presence filled half of it. As she repeated the vows, a scaly tail wrapped itself around her legs and hips three times. In the morning, there was nothing but bones in the hay and a worm calling. Older brothers marry first. You can be sure that after a few more applicants, the position took on less glamour and rumours started to circulate. It was the castle you went into and never came out. The messengers still circulated, but for a few months, everything went quiet. Even the rats were leaving the cellars of the place, let alone the servants. Albatross, albatross, albatross. Mary Celeste. With this in mind, it was a big surprise when a message came through from the daughter of a shepherd that she would marry the prince, but wished for a year and a day to prepare herself. The shepherd had heard the rumours and was distraught at his daughter's decision. She herself was not quite sure why she'd made it. As always in times of unrest, she took herself to the woods to think things through, feel things through. As she sat under the shade of an oak bough, an old woman walked clean out of the tree. Not round the tree, not towards the tree, out of the tree. For the second time in our tale, an old woman offered instruction. It was a brave thing to take this on, but wiser still to give yourself time to figure out a plan. If I was you, if I was you, I would sew twelve nightshirts for your wedding night, embroider especially around the heart. I would insist that one bath of water and ashes was prepared and one of milk and two great scrubbing brushes supplied. The baths and the brushes are to be left in the bedchamber. And quite what do you do with this advice? Well, that's what the rest of your preparation time is to figure out. And with that, she walked back into the core of the tree. For the rest of her time, the young woman laboured on the shirts. She'd never worked with that kind of intricacy before, and her hands ached and fingers got pricked by the needle. But she worked on, educating herself in both delicacy and stamina, persistence and imagination. She thought about quite what it was she was marrying and how to approach such a thing. Time came and the day arrived. She was given the tour, swiftly, by the last remaining servant and brought out into the low-lit room. She glanced at the lumbering presence filling half the room. Ah, she breathed, you must be my dear husband. We'll pause there for a moment 
and and go to the rest of the story in just one moment. But I want to remind our listeners that we're here with Dr. Martin Shaw, and he is the author of Courting the Wild Twin. He's a, a storyteller, and um, and we're talking about story and how in folk tales and fairy tales and how they bring us to a deepening, a deepening of our own inner questions, a deepening of our soul, as it were. So in just one moment, we'll finish this tale of the Lindworm. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Martin Shaw, and he's in the middle of this wonderful tale. And let's see how it it, it progresses now. She, the the shepherdess says, is saying, "Ah, you must be my dear husband." And then what happens? With that, she beckoned to the tail to wrap itself around her hips. She smiled, never taking her eyes from the despairing priest, even traced her hand slowly over the scales. Once the ceremony was finished, she turned to the worm. Dear husband, won't you show me your quarters? Now even the serpent was surprised. This was not how things had been going. In the warmth of the hay and secure in his den, the serpent growled, take off your nightshirt. She smiled. Oh, my husband, I want to, truly. Here's the thing. You take off one of your layers of scales, and I'll take off my shirt. He looked puzzled, almost touched. No one has ever asked me to do that before. It is a terrible and painful affair to take off a layer of scales. Finally, he had removed a layer, and she took off her shirt, revealing another. Take it off, he wheezed. Oh, I will, if you take off a layer of scales. Again, he spoke wonderingly. No one has ever asked me to do that before. You know this dance went on twelve times, twelve terrible layers. And underneath, not a man, not yet, but a kind of blubbery worm, pale and shining. She did not hesitate. She took the steel brushes, dipped them in the ashes and water, and took to the skin of the worm. Now, if you think scale removal hurts, it is as for nothing as scrubbing the flesh. He screamed, moaned, pleaded. It took many hours. As dawn approached, finally, there was a man in front of her. With the face of someone sent into exile, a long time ago. Someone with an ordinary beauty she would love her whole life. She gently bathed him in the milk as light filled the dark chamber. 
In the morning, when the king and the queen gingerly knocked at the door of the chamber, they saw their son and his beloved happily in bed together, laughing. Another wedding was had. It was a wild, rambunctious affair, a true celebration. And before too long, the younger brother found his true partner too. Restoration. It's not too late to long for it, fight for it, defend it. In the fields, the barley grows a little straighter. In the river, the salmon leaps a little higher. And in the sky, the stars glint a little brighter. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So, you know, uh, one of the things that popped up for me in the reading of that, and I, now I've read it several times myself, and I even read it out loud, and uh, it just reminds me, too, in, in the reading of that, uh, what what listening is all about. But the one thing that popped out for me was no one has asked me to do that before. And the serpent says that several times. Yeah, he does. No one has asked. And so in in this particular reading I in and telling of this tale, that really popped out at me. Can can you comment on that? Yeah. Well, this is a guy that's been in exile for 20 years. He has not had the milk of human kindness. This is a street kid, you know, he's out in the forest. Uh, what she does is an Aikido move. It's a surprising move. Everyone else would be terrified at such a moment. You're in the presence of something that's going to devour you, and you strike a different note. And that's what she does. She says, no, I want to marry you. You're the man of my dreams. Could you imagine saying that to a serpent? She says, it's just this one little thing I need from you. And astonishingly, he plays along. He could have just gobbled her up, but he didn't. He goes, no one has ever asked me to do that before. So that is telling us an enormous amount about how we handle darkness, how we handle very tricky situations. Look for the thing that's never been said and say it. Take courage. So when I hear him say that, it's not an aggressive thing to say. It's a wondering thing to say. It's a truthful thing to say. And he goes with it. Uh, he takes the initiatory medicine. That whole scene is incredibly alchemical. It's like an alchemical woodcut. I would recommend anybody out there, and I'm sure there's a few that study alchemy, to read this story in a little group together and just to walk through the images and see what is alive for them. But that's a lovely moment for me where we expect this young woman from the edge. I mean, think about that for a second. The crisis in the story is at the very center of the kingdom. And as is almost always the case in fairy tales, the genius is on the margins. It's from the edge. Please note, this is a very, uh, this is what we would call a peasant girl, a shepherdess who's coming in and marrying a king. Europe is heavy on the hierarchy. So it's an extraordinary thing that a girl with no kudos attached to her has quietly walked in. Like the character I mentioned earlier on, Parsifal turns up as an idiot, really, at, at uh, Camelot. She just walks in and uh, wrestles the situation to the ground because 
she has spent a year and a day learning uh, or brooding on the encounter. It's not to phase her because she has examined it from every single angle. Now, I probably heard this story as a child, but the first tellers that I heard telling the thing was the, I think it was a, it is an incredible Sicilian storyteller, Joya Timpanelli, who's a great heroine of mine, amazing teacher, great writer, great storyteller. Around the time that she and Robert Bly were working together and just revolutionizing the oral tradition in America and in Europe, actually, this was one of the stories that I think they told. And one of the little details that Robert loved so much, and we used to talk about this driving around, was the fact that the image that the young woman is preparing the wedding shirts and she's doing all of that sewing around the heart. Now, to Robert's poetically disposed mind, he sees that as, well, that's a kind of, she is attending to her own heart. She is becoming literate in the chambers of her own being. She's like a troubadour. Uh, he would call this the educated heart. And so by the time she walks into an encounter with the lindworm, she is no longer a naive girl. She's an educated woman. So these are fairy tales like this are a kind of shorthand. So they say in two or three lines what would normally take a whole book of philosophy to disclose. So we know just by the image of her working on layer after layer after layer of wedding shirts that this woman is already deeply prepared for the encounter. She has had the smarts to go out uh, and seek relatedness to the more than human. Do you remember I make a point of saying this is an old woman that walks out of a tree, not round a tree? She is moving out into a dimension of information that has ancestors in it. It has ravens and owls. It has star constellations in it. She's calling out to the whole wide world. And that really is how she begins the process of, you know, making a home for the serpent, which is this enormous thought in the middle of the story. And, and when you say an educated heart, I'm really struck by that and uh, longing for that. I mean, how how do we take the time to educate our heart? Where do we start? What's your experience? Well, first of all, we'd have to have a big think about what we thought a heart was. Uh, and a little book, uh, it's, it's, I always like talking to you because I get to talk about some of my great uh, mentors in all of this because we go, you know, you go back with these people. Uh, James Hillman. James Hillman wrote an incredible book called The Thought of the Heart where he really maps out that there's more than one kind of heart. Uh, you know, there's the heart that beats in your chest, the the actual medical organ. There's the heart when you say someone has the heart of a lion. You know, it's a, as a kind of metaphorical substance. Uh, and, you know, he goes on from that to really explore what, what does it mean to dwell within the heart. It's more than, I think, just us clutching our chest and saying, I feel. Because I feel 
seems to have become, uh, you know, the, the great authority in many people's lives. But certainly for me as a parent, I'm aware that what I feel uh, fluctuates, to be honest, Justine. What I feel now is what I may not feel in an hour. So I tend to playfully engage with my emotional states, but I don't want them to rule the house the whole time because that makes me um, possessed by them rather than dancing with them. And I know that many people will tell us to get into our feelings, our emotions, but you're saying that there's also something that goes along with that. Fine, we we understand our emotions, but that we should go deeper. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, uh, I only talked with Hillman once at the very end of his life, but Hillman would always say when people would, I mean, they would literally shout at him, you know, from the audience. And they said, you know, get in touch with your feelings, James, get in touch with your feelings. And he'd look in that hawk-like way at them. And they had not realized the door they'd just opened with a man of that kind of character. And he'd say, listen, you idiot, I'm trying to get in touch with my thinking. And Hillman is the guy that tells us that the brain is filled with blood. He tells us that it is a massive abdication of character to think that the heart doesn't have profound intelligence and discernment in it. Um, so I always loved that about him. And you know all all of the all of the thinkers that we're talking about today whether it's joya or it's jim or it's bly these are scholars these are scholars uh they don't rest under the lintel of deep feeling all the time they tell you this you may want to get to heaven but you won't get in if you didn't study Okay, great. Thank you. I'm here with Dr. Martin Shaw, and he's the author of Courting the Wild Twin. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, drmartinshaw.com. And it's he abbreviates it drdrmartinshaw.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I'm here with Dr. Martin Shaw. He's the author of Courting the Wild Twin, that exiled part of ourselves, really. 
And I, I know that, that you talk about listening as something very different from seeing. And I'm, I'm reminded of the book of John in the New Testament. And, and it begins, it, it actually begins the first chapter, first verse is, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. <laughs> so I, I love that. Uh, and I know my dear late husband, Michael Toms would always say, yeah, in the beginning was the word. And he was very <laughs> excited by that. Uh, so can you say something about why, li what listening actually, the alchemy of listening? Oh yeah. I was just listening then. Um, my work really circulates around a period of four years, about two decades ago now, where I lived in a tent on a succession of English hills. And it was just before I was really engaged with the internet in any way. I don't think I had a mobile phone. I don't recall it. So it, it was still an era where you could just about disappear. You know, I'd go to a phone box and ring my parents once a fortnight to tell them that I was still around. But that was it. And so there was a quiet already in the game. But the reason I became a storyteller is because I was looking for language wonderful enough, rich enough, eloquent enough to describe certain catastrophically powerful spiritual experiences I had gone through in my mid-twenties. I just didn't have the words for them. Therapy seemed to thin it out, to be honest. Therapeutic talk did. Uh, I knew that the influence of uh, Buddhism, although I do have a soft spot for Zogchen, actually, uh, but by and large, the kind of mindfulness thing. I was more interested in mindlessness in a way. Uh, I wanted, I had to listen really, Justin, because if I believe that stories are the way, if myth is the way that the earth thinks, I needed to listen deeply to forests and to rivers and to mountains and to gullies and to open moorland to see the stories that were trying to disclose themselves to me all the time. Uh, one of the writers I return to again and again is a philosopher called Gaston Bachelard. And one of the hugely important quotes that I sort of live by this really is this, the world seeks to be admired by you. The world seeks to be admired by you. It's very edifying for me that rowan trees and uh, the movement of a heron they're trying to attract your attention in some way. They're trying to produce a degree of praise from you. What is it like if every day you're a praise maker? You're not a, a war chief all the time, but you're a praise maker. So the listening came from listening to the enormity of certain things that I'd gone through actually out in the forest when I was younger and trying to figure out how on earth I was going to communicate any of that. And that's when the stories really emerged in my life as far more than uh, entertainment, far more than uh, just keeping a crowd entertained. They became the way I could articulate 
the deepest experiences of my life. You tell a story in the book uh, I hadn't heard before about Hermes, how, you know, when somebody goes to Hermes and, and ask uh, something and you, what was the advice given after Hermes, the god Hermes spoke to you? What was his advice? Well, it's, this is a great thing. You would go to the crossroads or you'd go to a place in a market where there was a shrine to Hermes, the god of the storytellers. You'd ask your question. You'd whisper it usually into his ear, turn and walk away. And the very first person you heard speaking after that moment was Hermes talking back to you. Could be the sound of a child. It could be, uh, you know, an old, it could be a drunk leaving the tavern. But Hermes' directive was in wait for the next encounter that you actually had. Uh, so I, I love that. That's part of the kind of the rolling of the bones, the divinatory nature of Hermes. You make your question known, you turn, you walk away, and the very next thing you hear that you can interpret is the return message. Isn't that wonderful? I, I love that. And so we're, we're attuning ourselves to our en environment. We're letting it speak to us. Yeah. It's an active thing. It's not just a passive thing. Yes, it's absolutely. It's very absolutely active. You know, honestly, one of the concerns I have at the moment with the situation that we're in, and I can't speak for America because I'm clearly not there, but I'm in, in England, is that the desire to make to fit everything back to normal which was never normal, really, not in a, in a decent way of behaving. But the attempt to return things to normal will mean that we never really took the pill of this experience. We never went down the well to the very bottom. A lot of fairy tales, you go down a well and the first brother gets 50 foot, the second brother gets 100 foot, but it's only the third that goes 100, 150 foot. This is a unique moment in all our lives. Certainly for me, a little under 50, never seen anything quite like this before. And my, my hope as a culture, we have the capacity to really hear what's being disclosed to each of us in this moment, not as a generalization, but I see, you know, wherever, I don't know where you live, Justine, but I see where I live on Dartmoor, each house is like a little alchemist's hut. Everybody's bubbling away at the moment. Some people will change their lives completely. Others, it will stay exactly as it was. Other people will do something else. But something is trying to be said in the deep chambers of our heart right now. And I just hope that we see this through to its uncomfortable edge, that we actually do something with it. For me, I'm reminded that it's the power of the small, that this, this microscopic virus that we can't even see with our eyes, uh, that is just bubbled up from the earth itself and just stopped humanity in its tracks. I wondered how it was going to happen. What what would cause 
a pause long enough for the possibility of looking anew at what we're doing on both on the planet and to the planet. Do you have any comment on that? No, it's just not uh, not something I'd thought about. But I, you're right. Yeah, it's something very small, something seemingly invisible. You know, something seemingly invisible. The strange thing about this for me was that in the months leading up to coronavirus really coming into our daily consciousness, which for me in England was about mid-January, for the 101 days leading up to that moment, I had been involved in a ceremony in a local forest to me where I went out every day and listened. I thought, okay, if the world really is going to hell in a handbag, if I really believe the stuff that I write about and have lived by, I'll go out every day with a story to tell to a place and see how it responds, just see what happens. And that led into you know, a, a deeply visionary state of mind. And I had only just crawled back from that experience. 101 days is a long time to do anything. Oh. Not 10, 101, you're going to feel that. I just crawled back to my cottage and someone said, oh, you, you need to hear about this thing called coronavirus. And so I'm instantly catapulted into yet another sort of retreat experience. But I'm now so sensitized by what I'd been through before this, I probably hear it in a different way yet again. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's affecting all of us like that, hopefully in some way. I guess you are gifted with coming into it already mm. sensitized to that deep listening and uh, that we're all, I think it's my hope and and dream that we're all doing that deep, deep listening uh, to Mother Earth and to one another and glean the wisdom from from the tree <laughs> you know she came the wisdom and came out of the tree uh which is grounded in the earth uh, all these images just keep popping for me there's so much richness i want to thank you so much martin for for being part of new dimensions and bringing these stories to life for us and giving us words and wisdom to ponder and and look at and being a counsel so so to speak to uh deepen our own hearts and educate our own hearts thank you so much for being with us i've been speaking with dr martin Shaw, and he's the author of many books, including The Night Wages and also the Myth Teller Trilogy, wonderful, wonderful books, and now his newest book, Courting the Wild Twin. And if you want to know more about his work, you can go to his website, drmartinshaw.com, and he spells it, he abbreviates Dr. Dr. Martin Shaw. Dot com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3701. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. 
You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.